Welcome back, folks, to Everything Under the Moon. I'm Mel Freitas. Join me tonight as we discuss Teddy Roosevelt's infamous Sasquatch encounter. I want to talk about Teddy Roosevelt's Sasquatch encounter tonight. And although I call it his encounter, he didn't really encounter the Sasquatch. He wrote a secondhand story of a man he knew who uh, might have encountered a Sasquatch. So not really his story, but it's super interesting. So let's get started. We all know a lot about Teddy Roosevelt, right? He's famous for the teddy bear, talk quietly and carry a big stick, (laughs) that famous quote. He was a great president. And a lot of the things I read said that many people consider Teddy Roosevelt to be one of the top five presidents of the United States. But I wanted to kind of focus on where he was in his life when he writes this story. So this book is written in 1889, uh, so before he's president, of course. Teddy Roosevelt became president in 1901 after McKinley's assassination. He was serving as his vice president. So he becomes the 26th president after McKinley passes away, and he actually didn't serve with a vice president that first term because there wasn't a protocol in place to replace a VP when you seceded the president. So I thought that was interesting. He kind of just is at the helm of the ship all by himself. But that's later on. So in 1889, this is really soon after the death of his wife, Alice. Um, She dies a couple days after giving birth to their daughter, Alice, And she passes away from an undetected kidney infection. And that same day, previously, not even 12 hours apart, his mother had passed away. And this is famously a a really dark time in Roosevelt's life. To kind of cope with this, (laughs) I love what he did to cope with it. He gives his daughter, his, his infant daughter, to his sister to raise and watch over. And he goes to Dakota and buys a cattle ranch, (laughs) names a cattle ranch Elkhorn. It was about 4,000 acres. And he, you know, tried to attempt to kind of cash in on this big boom of cattle ranching in the West at the time. And he famously, you know, his whole life and now in this time was an avid hunter and outdoorsman. So those are kind of the types of books he's writing at this time. He's writing books about his hunting trips and his experiences And this book that he included the story in is called The Wilderness Hunter. And it's kind of full of a bunch of little short stories and anecdotes about his time in the West. And it's really interesting. It's, you know, a window into this era of conservation in this time in America where we really valued nature and natural spaces, but we valued them for what they could give us. Teddy Roosevelt was a huge game hunter, and he, I don't know if he aspired to, but he mentions in The Wilderness Hunter that he has killed every one of America's big game predators or big game animals. So that's kind of the attitude of this era of conservation. And in my ecology education, I thought that was really interesting because it's so different from what we practice now. He was, I mean, he was an amazing conservationist. We should not look down on him for his, you know, however you feel about hunting. I am a hunter myself, but we shouldn't look down on him at all for this game hunting because he did so much for America today as a conservationist. He established the U.S. Forest Service and he used executive orders when he was president to protect over 230 million acres of land. (laughs) He wrote this story and published it in The Wilderness Hunter, like I said. 
It's about six pages long, uh, and it's public. What's the word I'm looking for? You know, when a book is free because it's so old. You can go online on Google Books and get it for free. So I'm going to read the entire story that he wrote because I think it's just so good and it's not too long. He's a great writer, I think, for, you know, someone who didn't train to be a writer. So I'm going to read this excerpt from the book. It starts on page 441 of The Wilderness Hunter on Google Books. So if you want to follow along or just look it up yourself, uh, it's not hard to find at all. So that's The Wilderness Hunter by Theodore Roosevelt. Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be very superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical and have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. I have heard but few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and these few were of the perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story which rather impressed me. It was told by a grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bowman, who was born and had passed all his life on the frontier. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry, and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghost and goblin lore, so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps, of the snow walkers, and the specters, and the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths, and the dog and waylay the lonely wanderer, who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk, and it may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute, both at the time and still more in remembrance, weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast. But whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bowman was still a young man, and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of the Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass, through which ran a small stream said to contain many beaver. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before, a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was there slain, seemingly by a wild beast, the half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of this event, however, weighed very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass, where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky timber-clad ground being from thence onwards impracticable for horses. They then struck out on foot through the vast, gloomy forest, and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising round it like a wall. On one side was a little stream, 
beyond which rose the steep mountain slopes covered with the unbroken growth of the evergreen forest. They were surprised to find that during their short absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores, and lighting the fire. While Bowman was making ready supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely, and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up, where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating his inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bowman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bowman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right, and upon again examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by but two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being, and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up in their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bowman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps they had set the previous evening and to put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, that the lean-to had been again torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned, and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding, and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp it had gone along the soft earth by the brook, where the footprints were as plain as if on snow, and, after a careful scrutiny of the trail, it certainly did seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had walked off on two legs. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night, one or the other sitting on guard most of the time. About midnight, the thing came down through the forest opposite, across the brook, and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan, a peculiarly sinister sound. Yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were the more ready to do this, because in spite of seeing a good deal of game sign, they had caught very little fur. 
However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense, spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed, and now and then there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp. In the high, bright sunlight, their fears seemed absurd to the two armed men. Accustomed as they were, through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness, to face every kind of danger, from man, brute, or element. There were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bowman volunteered to gather these and bring them in, while his companion went ahead to camp and make ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bowman found three beaver in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting. As he hurried towards camp under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest weighed on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun rays, striking through among the straight trunks, made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the ghostly stillness, which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber, primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay, and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still curling upwards. Near it lay the packs, wrapped and arranged. At first Bowman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward again, he shouted, and as he did, so his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed deep in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking nearby in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled round it in uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bowman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off at a speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until far beyond the reach of pursuit.
So, quite the story, isn't it? In an effort to verify this story, because I think that's, it's not everything, but it's important to vet your stories a little bit, just so you know they're not purely made up for entertainment. A journalist in 2014 attempted to identify Bowman. Of course, we only have a last name, and uh, it is spelled the German way, so B-A-U-M-A-N, Bowman. And he found a record from the Minnesota Historical Society, kind of like a census record, um, of a man named Carl Bowman. So he was born in Germany in 1831. Carl L. Bowman was an early pioneer who came to live in Montana around the 1860s. So he would have been living in Montana at the same time that Roosevelt began giving the state, or began visiting the state. Um, and at the time that you know, Teddy publishes his book, he would have been about, oh, in his 50s. This doesn't exactly match up with Roosevelt's story. He says that Bowman was born and raised in the West, and just that he was of German descent. But this is as close as we can get to identifying Bowman. So I thought that was kind of cool. This same journalist was able to find a map uh, made in 1865, uh, called the Gulches and Lodes map of the area, where uh, he kind of highlighted where the Salmon River and the Wisdom River meet, and this is kind of the approximate area of where this encounter would have taken place. So that's really cool. We do have some evidence, you know, this was a real place. It might have even been a verifiable person that we know was in the area. So I did a little research on the area and its history, because I think that that is the answer to a lot of these folktales. This area area was settled, or, you know, more likely colonized, around the time of the 1860s with the intention of finding gold mines. Gold soon became scarce, and so people started mining for lead, silver, and zinc. I found this interesting. 45% of the U.S. mined silver comes from Idaho, so a really rich area. Traditionally, though, this is Nez Pierce land, and they were um, one of the largest groups of people in the Plateau region at the time. They had a huge, huge native range, and there were several bands of Nez Pierce people. Kind of interesting, they, they weren't called Nez Pierce people by themselves. They called themselves the Nimipu, which meant, you know, the people, a lot of Native American tribes there. The name they call themselves just means the people, which makes sense, right? Nez Pierce kind of means nose piercing, and the French settlers mistook probably Chinook Indians who did have nose piercings for uh, Nimipu people. So, but I'm going to stick with Nez Pierce because it is easier for me to say, <laughs> and that is kind of the colloquial name, uh, also what they call themselves. So, anyway. The band of people living who would have lived where this uh, incident took place were called the Lama Tama or Lama Tama. I'm not sure. Uh, it translates to land with little snow. I guess the climate was really reasonable. They're also called the Salmon River Band, and they were the second largest regional group of Nez Perce people. They were kind of known for uh, breeding horses, and the Nez Perce people are the you know, they developed the Appaloosa breed of horse, and that's still a big part of their culture today. So that's really cool. So traditionally, this land where this story takes place is Nez Pierce land, 
And at the time the story is supposed to have taken place, or, you know, this era, they would not have just, they would have just left or been forced off of this land. Uh, I think in 1865 is when the Nez Perce, um, the final treaty, essentially took away three quarters of their land in the area. And the Nez Perce Reservation today is really close to where this takes place in Idaho. So they're not too far removed. If this is, you know, some native creature, who would know about it other than the native people? So there are two main theories people love to spout about this encounter. The first, of course, is a Sasquatch or Bigfoot. But before uh, we talk about that, I want to quickly throw in another kind of lesser theory that I found of the Wendigo. So a Wendigo is traditionally a large humanoid cannibal um, who is kind of gaunt and starving. And they, legend has it that with every human they eat, they uh, gain the size of that human. And so therefore, they're always needing more food. So that's why despite being, you know, greedy and hungry, they're really gaunt. And we a lot of times see Wendigo drawings and representations with like, you know, antlers or with animal skulls. And that's kind of added later by uh, notably white storytellers in the 20th century. And the traditional native myths didn't include that element. The myth of the Wendigo is not native to the Nez Pierce people or the area that this took place. So this is the biggest thing for me that kind of rules it out because if this mythical creature cryptid is real, I don't think that it's traveling across America. <laughs> this is a legend traditional to Algonquin speaking people. So the Ojibwe, you know, kind of Midwest tribes rather than the Plateau West tribes. The Wendigo, however, is described as having a bad smell, a large looming figure, and of, of course, eating people. And so this ties into the part of the story where they say the uh, mountain valley was an evil place because previously a trapper had been found half-eaten. So I think that's why people latch on to this theory. The Wendigo is, you know, really an allegory for greed and destruction of community trust. They think that's where this legend kind of came from. Um, in a community where you're relying on others to live, a creature that denies, you know, community trust and is greedy is deathly. I don't know. I think it's cool to see the sociological importance of these legends because even if they're not real cryptids, they still serve a purpose as a story. I think this is really unlikely, but it does tie up some of the loose ends, so to speak, in the story. Like I said, the previous trapper being eaten, um, it did, you know, I, the faint marks in the story are just the weirdest part to me because it's like vampire-esque. And if this is a Wendigo and it's killing that guy to eat him, then why didn't he eat him? <laughs> why, did, why did he just bite his neck and then leave? Maybe, maybe Bowman approaching the campsite like scared him off and that's why the body was still warm. Who knows? So let's talk about Sasquatch, which is uh, everyone's favorite theory. And I personally believe this theory you know, as much as you can vet a Sasquatch story from 200 years ago. But the elements in the story that really speak to Sasquatch for me uh, were the horrible smell. We've heard this a million times that Sasquatches just reek. And it makes sense. I mean, dogs out in nature, they're rolling in dead animals. And they kind of imply that that's what this animal might have done to Bowman's friend. They say that he had kind of rolled over the body. I don't know why dogs do that. 
<laughs> now that I say that. Is that like a territorial thing, a scent thing? Who knows? Um, but anyway, horrible smell is kind of a commonplace Bigfoot theory. The bipedal footprints, of course, uh, something walking on two legs. The only creature in this area that would walk on two legs is a human. That's just it. The stalking behavior really kind of struck out or stuck out to me as well. Um, they describe hearing the creature walking beside them while they're checking their traps. And that's something I've heard in other Sasquatch encounters as well. And it makes sense if this is a territorial animal trying to, you know, determine if you're a threat or even protect itself from you. It's going to stay hidden. and It's going to watch you, especially if you have weapons. And they were firing at the creature, so it knows they're dangerous. Of course, they describe the creature as large and kind of looming, which, um, classic Bigfoot, you know, they're huge. <laughs> the ransacking of the camp was really interesting to me. It reminded me of the Albert Ostman story. And if you haven't heard this legend, a man named Albert Ostman was backpacking or prospecting in the, uh, the early 20th century. And he claims to have been kidnapped by a Sasquatch and then taken to live with this family of Sasquatch. And he eventually escaped. And uh, I'm working on some research for his story, too. So no worries. You'll hear that. But the night before he is captured, his camp is ransacked as well. And I think they took like his salt and or no, they didn't take the salt. Um, they took some food and he like he mentions Albert Osman, he's a great storyteller. He mentions that he thought it was a porky or a porcupine, but that it didn't eat his salt, which he thought was interesting. Uh, you know, wild animals, it's really hard for them to get salt. So a lot of times when you're camping, uh, that is something they'll go for if they get into your food. So ransacking of camp, whether this is a, you know, a curiosity thing or a territorial thing, I think it really speaks to a Sasquatch encounter. And last is the moan sounds that they describe. And I thought this was kind of the smoking gun of the Sasquatch theory. They describe the sound as uttering, they say, several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan. And this, you know, it's really hard to describe sounds, <laughs> um, especially secondhand, but a long drawn out moan sounds just like a Sasquatch howl to me. And it's really hard because Teddy isn't, you know, this isn't firsthand and he doesn't elaborate on it any more than this. I wish they had described the sounds more because they do say that it happened several times, but all of these things combined, they really, really just reek of Sasquatch to me. And I had kind of a weird, this might be a bit conspiracy theory-ish, but, you know, so if you believe this, that Sasquatch uh, killed, these, killed this man, I thought it was really interesting that the only traps that were full were the ones that Bowman went to check while he was alone. And so is it possible that this Squatch, you know, in an attempt to keep them out of its territory, um, was, you know, either emptying their traps that they had set um, and taking the beaver and left these other traps full so that they would separate, you know, or knowing that now that he's separated, he wanted to keep him away from camp so that he might hurt the other trapper. I know it sounds a little weird, but when I first read this story, I was like, that's super interesting that, 
you know, they thought it was a great place to trap and there was lots of sign of game, but they didn't get a single beaver until the end when Bowman, you know, branches off by himself. I looked into Nez Pierce Sasquatch lore and unfortunately I couldn't find anything super, you know, or like ancient or historical. But I did find a, a recent modern day tribal sighting um, and it's really interesting. So I found this on the BFRO website, bfro.net, and it was written by Doreen Yellowbird, published in the Grand Forks Herald. And I believe she's a journalist for the Grand Forks Herald because I found a lot of other articles she also wrote for them. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's a little long. But I'm going to pull out some really interesting things. So she's talking about a Bigfoot sighting uh, in the area of the Bitterroot and Salmon River Mountains. So this is the historical area of this sighting, of this incident. These people were driving through the mountains, and they see what they think is a cow grazing on the side of a hill. And then the cow stands up, and it's a giant hairy man. And it turned toward them, and they claimed it looked human. And when it saw them, it ran. And they stopped and investigated this. You know, all of the classic stuff, they find that the footprints are huge and the length of the stride is huge. That it would have taken a, a regular human much more time and distance to make it the distance that the squatch ran in front of them. What's even more interesting is after this sighting, they told... A spiritual leader, you know, who they were acquainted with about this encounter. And he says that when he was on the West Coast, he was in a place where Sasquatch were frequently seen. He was taken somewhere by people who wanted him to see them. They know where the Bigfoot is and keep their home a secret, he said. They waited for the chance to see the Sasquatch, and he wasn't convinced at that point that they were real. But while he was waiting, he heard noises in the trees, and before he heard them, he could smell them. They smelled awful. And when they came into view, they were, as people had reported, large, hairy beasts with long arms, but not gorillas, he said. The creatures made low, guttural sounds as if they were talking, but they couldn't understand any of the words. When the man-like beasts had left, this man and his friends examined the area where they had been. They found footprints that were three times the size of a human's. The footprints were shaped like a human foot, he said. They didn't report their sightings to anyone, and they are best left alone. I believe there are many things beyond our understanding. I believe my grandmother was right when she told her grandchildren, it is a fool who thinks they know everything and have seen everything. So... This is really interesting. This native woman is, you know, in her native community. They're sharing knowledge of these Sasquatch sightings and basically confirming each other's experiences. I do think that native people are a more, I think they're a more credible source when it comes to this thing because they've got this, you know, tie to nature here in America that we don't, as, you know, a white person, we don't have. I just, I believe it more when it, when it comes from tribal people because um, this is their land and they're definitely not doing anything to, you know, they're not going to make this stuff up. And especially the fact that they didn't tell anyone. They don't tell anyone. They don't report their sightings. And the people he's associating with who are 
showing him, you know, they, they apparently know where the Sasquatches are, where they live, what they're doing, and they view them safely and then leave. And that's not something that, you know, people like out, like white people out hunting Bigfoot, like I do, <laughs> it's not something that happens. But there's something about this native knowledge that gives them and the upper hand. And I just think we cannot ignore that. That's kind of the end of my research. So what do you think? I think, I really do think this is a Sasquatch story. And I believe Bowman and I believe Teddy in his account. But it really just points to a Sasquatch for me. And I should say too, I think it's more credible when we talk about Sasquatches being violent. Because I just don't see how this species, if they are a you know, a flesh and blood ape species, how they could survive so long and not be discovered if they weren't violent. To keep the secret for so long, there's got to be some harsh measures being taken, I think. So I'm going to post the maps and all of my links in the show notes and on our website. Get weekly updates on the podcast and see what we're up to on Instagram at everything under the moon podcast. If you want to support our endeavors and receive access to exclusive content, check out our Patreon, and that's patreon.com EUTM. We also have a Facebook fan page and a group to chat with us about episodes. Check that out at EUTM Podcast. Thanks for listening, you guys. Good night.